Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Here's a question. How can you tell if an animal is depressed? Well, if your pet rat has long periods of staring into space, doing nothing and not eating much, that could be one indication. But what if you're looking after an octopus? What do we need to understand about an animal's brain functions before we start assuming that their mental state isn't quite up to scratch? It may seem like a bizarre question to philosophise about, but the answer fundamentally affects how animal welfare is legislated. So I'm Mike Mendel. I'm Professor of Animal Behaviour and Welfare at Bristol University in the UK. Professor Mike Mendel is set on ensuring the welfare of all creatures big and small. He was in Melbourne recently to present a public seminar at the Animal Welfare Science Centre titled Assessing Animal Effect. How can we tell what a domestic animal is thinking or feeling, drawing on animal behaviour, human psychology and cognitive neuroscience? Here at the University of Melbourne, he spent some time chatting about his work with our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Now, if I met you at a vegan barbecue, how would you describe what you do? Well, I'm a researcher in animal welfare, um, so I work on the welfare of animals, trying to develop ways of measuring their welfare, in particular scientifically, and with a general aim to try and improve animal welfare, also improve productivity or improve the quality conditions for animals and this could be laboratory and farm animals and companion animals too. How have humans changed their thinking about animals over the last centuries? Um, That's an interesting question and obviously there's been a lot of different views that people have had about animals and the animal rights and animal welfare organisations came into being um, a couple of hundred years ago in the UK and these um, have I guess, focused on animals as being sentient organisms who are capable of suffering and maybe change somewhat how we view them and how we should view how we treat them and keep them. So there has been a shift in that way, which is not just that recent, but there's been certainly in the last couple of hundred years a a shift towards that. And I think as a result, there's now currently in countries like the UK in particular a very um, big concern about animal welfare in a variety of different contexts in which animals are kept. What changes have you seen since you first entered the field that's already shifted animal welfare? My field is animal welfare science so we try and develop ways of measuring animal welfare and also then using those methods to try and see what animals are experiencing in terms of welfare in different environments and how we might change the practices to improve their welfare and productivity at the same time. And I think there's been a shift from um, thinking of animal welfare measures as being partly or or mainly to do with the, the biological functioning in terms of physiology, reproduction, injury and so on, to a concentration more on the mental states of animals and an acceptance that animal welfare for many people is a concern about whether animals are able to suffer or feel pain, thirst, hunger, and therefore we need to know more about their mental states. Invite us to follow you around for a couple of weeks like an intern. Explain a case study for us that you're working on that examines particular animals. What animal do you study? What are you measuring? 
So we're doing quite a lot of work on laboratory animal welfare currently um, in the UK. And some of our projects involve looking at um, quite simple behavioural measures, for example, measures of activity or inactivity. Um, For example, time spent with the eyes open but doing nothing, which one of my colleagues, Dr. Carol Furex, who's at Plymouth University, has proposed to be a useful indicator of depression-like states in, um, in mice and other animals. And so part of our work would be to look at whether we can correlate how much time animals spend lying around with their eyes open, which seems to be, you know, equivalent to sort of apathy, depression-like state, and correlate that with other indicators of welfare to see whether it might be a good indicator of this um, particular state. Laboratory animals have been used for quite a few decades. Have there been changes there? Oh, there's been lots of changes in legislation. Um, Again, speaking from a UK perspective, in 1986, there was a major act, um, the Animal Scientific Procedures Act, which came in to try and safeguard animal use in laboratories and made getting licences to do work on animals a much more rigorous process. And that's developed over the last few years, again, with some changes in uh, in last um, decade, which have increased the number of different sorts of species which are covered by this act and so on. There's quite a range of laboratory animals. Do they still use guinea pigs? Oh yes, guinea pigs are still one of the one of the animal species used. I mean, the most commonly used species is still the mouse, laboratory mouse. Um, fish, zebra fish in particular, are becoming much more commonly used now, and rats. So, mice, rats, and zebra fish make up, uh, at least in the UK again, uh, the majority of animals used. But there are a lot of other species used in much smaller numbers. It's quite a controversial area, or has been rather. Tell us about your experience of the controversy involved in animal use in laboratories. Well, clearly there's been a lot of um, heated debate about the use of animals in uh, experiments and why they're being used, what they're being used for, what their experiences are in those environments. And um, again, in the UK, there's been a lot of, um, uh, in the past, not so much recently, but in the past, quite a lot of activity, direct action, including bombs and so on, which obviously have made laboratory animal researchers' lives a bit more uncomfortable. Um, currently, there's, a, there's a, a push towards being quite open about what goes on in laboratories. Um, and I think that's, that's a good thing if people can do that safely. Um, uh, and from our point of view, we, we obviously look at the way in which the animals are kept and whether that can be improved in some ways um, through changing um, caging. Um, and, and many of the companies who build cages are also looking into much more innovative ways of caging, giving animals more space, allowing them to access more than one cage and so on. So there are lots of developments going on in that area. Is research restricted by our assumptions about what an animal may be thinking and feeling in terms of its ability to thrive or its vitality? Yes, I think that um, underpinning all concerns about animal suffering and welfare is some assumption about um, the ability of the animals to experience suffering, to experience pain, to be frustrated. Um, to be simple things like hungry, I guess, and if not fed well, those things are much less of a concern, usually because the animals are usually fed very well. But all these mental states are things that animals um, are assumed to have, those animals which we have legislation to protect. And I guess the cutoff lines perhaps somewhat somewhat reflect the assumptions that um, some species, we're not so sure about their abilities to suffer or to have these experiences, and therefore we don't legislate to protect them. And there are obviously controversies about where that cutoff line should be made currently yet. 
it's cephalopods in the UK. They're the the main invertebrates, octopuses, squids, and so on. They're the, the main invertebrates who can be um, who are protected under the laboratory animal um, legislation, whereas insects and many other invertebrates are not. So some animals have a psychology that is, I've got to eat. I don't want to get eaten, and I've got to get a mate. But clearly, with things like octopi, there's something more involved in their psychology. Well, we think there is. So obviously, the uh, as you say, all animals have to do these vital survival um, um, activities are finding things to eat, avoiding being eaten. Um, but um, animals vary in the social organisation they have, and they vary in the sorts of um, uh, tasks that they require to do to, to get their food, some of which require much more complex behaviours than other, other, other sorts of um, food acquisition. So um, octopuses may have to catch um, uh, organisms which they can then open and extract food from and they uh, maybe need to learn um, particular associations which help them to do this. They also have some very uh, com- complex camouflage abilities which are, again, the cognitive processing involved is not entirely clear but people are looking into what sort of processes are required for them to assume the shape and appearance of objects in in amazing ways so they do some very clever things to our eyes whether that then reflects that they are particularly um, intelligent or consciously aware in the way that we are if we were to do these things is another question and that's something that's very difficult to answer directly because we can't get into the heads of these other animals directly. Just as an aside is there truth to the common knowledge that octopi and I think it's crows have a larger brain size <laughs> compared to their body? Well yes so, so the, the brain size relative to the body is one thing and certainly certain species have a larger encephalization index so certain but they, the, um, the cortical parts of the brain are bigger than one would expect and the brain per, uh, in total is bigger than one would expect for the body size so you can draw a line looking at body size against brain size and there are some outliers so where the, the brain size is much higher than you would predict um, for body size but another thing that's coming to the fore now is the understanding of neuronal density and so bird brains um, uh, have much high density of neurons and so they cram many more neurons into a small space than an equivalent mammal and that makes a lot of sense for an animal which has to do complex things but also has to fly so it wants to have light light apparatus on board and one way of doing this seems to be to, to have a much more densely packed neuronal structure and architecture oh gosh we've got to stop using the word you're bird a bird brain. brain. <laughs> exactly yeah we'll use it in the <laughs> other des- way to describe <laughs> someone as not being quite clever I'm keen to understand the role of evolution and genetics in this. So let's start with evolution. How has this informed animal welfare? Well, I guess this, that's a good question because a lot of our animals who we are working with directly in terms of improving welfare are, for example, domesticated animals, farm animals and so on. So evolution there is a complex thing because we all have the process of domestication and that's obviously affected animals in some ways in the sense that they are, have become much less fearful of people than they would have been so they are certainly able to deal with things that a wild animal would find extremely challenging and we have to take that into on board when we look at um, how we might improve welfare and, and, and acknowledge that they can certainly withstand being closer to people for example having contact with people on a regular basis compared to a wild ancestor so there are things like that which obviously affect how we perceive those animals. And that was actually going to be my next question Mm. is, can the genetics of domesticated animals compared to the wild give us clues about the behaviour? You've just said, yes, it does. They're used to us. Yeah. So how do we then approach animal welfare? And I I want to ask you, is it a cost-benefit analysis for humans, for society, for animals? 
And is this comparative weighted trade-off actually a way of thinking that's even appropriate? I think we can approach, in terms of what the animals require, for example, so our baseline might be something to think about how what the, what the animals might want in their environments and whether we're able to provide that. Then obviously genetics, as I've said, and evolution has changed what they require. But there is a lot of evidence too that um, domesticated species, if, for example, released into the wild, behave in quite similar ways to their ancestral species. So feral pigs, for example, um, will form groups which are very similar to the wild boar ancestor and so on. So you will see quite a lot of similarities there. So there are still um, certainly uh, thoughts that they they, they could require and could um, certainly benefit from particular sorts of environments which their wild ancestors would be in, albeit that they are much more um, uh, used to human presence and less affected by it. So there are those um, issues which we need to think about and, and, and means that um, we could assume that these animals have quite... Um, similar requirements to ancestral species but what we actually do is we try and measure what they want so um, part of animal welfare science is to measure what animals want by seeing how hard they work to access particular resources um, um, particular sort of it could be something as simple as a, ca a cage floor type you know do they prefer this type to that type and we can ask them questions like that and see what is the most preferred environment with the assumption that if they get the preferred things they are going to be in a more positive emotional state and they're going to be um, in a state that they want and that will be better for their welfare and one can then design from first principles environments of course they may not be suitable sometimes they may be difficult to um, commercially employ so one has to then see how one can integrate these things into um, a commercially affordable system that's one way certainly of trying to improve animal welfare you've made me think of chickens i know that there's been research done in the types of floors they yeah, prefer because yeah. they like to scratch yes. in and have dust baths and things like that so these sort of changes have been implemented in some of the egg-laying industry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fascinated by this discussion of being re-released into the wild mm -hmm. um, and that they've still got their ancestral genetics and behavioural capabilities mm -hmm. to survive. I'm not sure if I was let out into the wild I could survive no. as humans. Uh, I, think, I think you're right that animals released into the wild, um, often inadvertently or escaping from um, uh, farms or whatever, um, they are probably less able to keep, to avoid predation and so on because of their background experience. I think after generations, if they survive for generations in the wild, they will uh, clearly develop these abilities or redevelop these abilities. And certainly the animals, it'll be some sort of selection procedure going on then. Those animals who escaped, who were good at avoiding predation, are likely to give rise to the next generation. Um, so initially, when a, a domestic species um, gets into the wild, it will be very vulnerable. And this is the same also with... Um, wild animals who've been raised in captivity. So I'm involved in some work which is looking at um, the welfare of rehabilitated primates in, for example, South America. And and it's clear then that, that uh, unfortunately, some of these animals are used in the uh, illegal pet industry and they come in as wild animals who've been kept as pets and they are need to be retrained really to adapt to the challenges of being in the wild again. So you can see that in, in an individual's lifetime, they can... Um, their their experience can change how well they can cope with the wild environment, but they have the ability there, um, which if retrained can be reintroduced. And likewise for the even for domesticated species in their evolutionary lifetime, they've probably been less exposed to the um, pressure of predation. But there seems to be something there which will help them to survive if they are released. 
There's something said for then learning SAS and scouting skills <laughs> yeah, to survive yeah. in the wild. Um, whilst you've been talking about animals, I can't help but think about individual variation in animals. Mm. As a dog owner, I've had many dogs and they've all had different personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, they've all had different what as a human I subscribe to as a cheeky behaviour, different types of cheekiness. How do you resolve this issue of individual Mm. aspects of an animal psychology? Mm. It's a very good question because obviously animal welfare changes are often made for the group or for the the, um, population of animals and there will be variation in how the animals deal with the environment and just the social environment. Obviously some animals are likely to be higher up the pecking order than others when in groups which have some sort of social organisation like that and therefore some animals will be um, uh, exposed to aggression and so on from other animals and do less well in the same environment. So one can then think about ways of trying to make provision for those animals to escape attack or so on. But it is the case, obviously, that your the environments one builds um, may not suit all animals the same to the same way because there is great individual variation in behaviour. And to try and overcome that, the uh, as I said, the thing to do is to try and build in features which um, some animals who may not otherwise do so well can take advantage of, uh, areas to escape from others and so on, and make sure that resources are all evenly spread so there's no bunching of a resource, which means that only the top rankers get access or whatever. So there are things one can do to try and even out the uh, inevitable disparity between individuals in the same group. Over the centuries, as you've said, we've redefined sentience with reference to suffering, but also capabilities and intelligence. Mm-hmm. Have we redefined intelligence enough for animals? I think intelligence is a really difficult question for animals because each animal is adapted to a different niche. And so um, within its own niche, it can appear to be very intelligent. It can do things which are what we might think of um, as not particularly clever for our, for, for, from our point of view, but actually very well adapted to that environment. So defining intelligence in a very general way, it's not easy. Some people fall back on our definition, which is to do with flexibility and the ability to um, do actually tackle lots of different um, issues. Being a generalist, in a sense, have um, quite complex cognitive abilities that allows you to tackle a range of different issues. And that's that may be something we can think of as intelligence. But um, in other way, in other ways, and um, being able to detect um, sonar, um, be able to remember where you've uh, hidden ten thousand nuts or whatever. These are things that animals can do, and they are different sorts of intelligence. Very good memory, very good sensory abilities. So. Intelligence itself is a, is, a, is a quite a difficult concept, um, uh, and um, to, particularly to compare across species, it's difficult. But certainly, you know, some species are much more adaptable, flexible, can do a variety of different things, um, have a complex organisation socially, so can do very complex social things, which people often think of as being very intelligent. So they can sort of deceive each other apparently, or um, predict what each other's going to do, and these things um, yeah. are often seen as intelligent. That's quotes. right. Problem solving is actually based on the context. Mm-hmm. Um, just like there are various CEOs that, that are appropriate for the right stage of an organisation, mm-hmm. whether it's a startup or whether it's a reinvention or whether it's, yeah, so problem solving in humans is a huge spectrum as well. So it's no surprise yeah, that yeah. it's a spectrum in there. I want to go back to the tricky topic of animal welfare. Some of the assessments for animal welfare obviously are scientific, there are measurements, there are ways of understanding. But it becomes a morality question as well. How do you assess the morality of what humans Mm. are doing with animals in Mm. society? 
Yeah, so our work is primarily at the scientific end. So we're trying to do um, to, to make scientific measures of welfare, which we could then use as a metric for the effect of what we're doing on the animal. But you're right that obviously the the ethical judgments then of what we do and the costs and benefits are uh, something which I, I guess broader society has to also be involved in. Scientists, in some ways, uh, animal welfare scientists at least, are providing data on the effects on the animals. So when it comes down to the ethical issues of using animals for experimentation, for example, for eating, you know, what, what are the costs and benefits, then it is a societal question, um, but certainly philosophers can have input and scientists can, can have input. Generally, for example, in laboratory animal welfare, um, there's an idea of trying to trade off. Um, uh, um, my PhD supervisor, Sir Patrick Bateson, who recently sadly died, I mean, he was very well known for his so-called Bateson's Cube, which traded off different types of consideration, the quality of the science, the suffering of the animal, and the medical benefits, for example. You could try to trade those off and sort of make a utilitarian uh, judgment to a certain extent about when one could justify um, what sort of experiment and that's just one approach obviously animal rights people have a different view they think absolutely we should not be using animals in these these contexts so there are different philosophical standpoints and it's a very as you say a very complicated issue with lots of different people's views at least we have some data to fall back on that are sensible questions about animals yes I, we hope that animal welfare science measures i mean they're not perfect of course um, but they are um, at least providing some objective data to the debate, which is really a major role that animal welfare science can play together with providing ways in which one can implement things and, and improve welfare through change in, in environments or whatever for the animal. What are some of the common misconceptions you've encountered, be it public or even scientists, about animal welfare? I guess it's, a, it's an interesting question. So um, some people are just surprised that one studies animal mental states and so or even uh, particularly surprised that certain species would be considered to be sentient so there's arguments about fish for example you know why oh well, they don't feel pain do they and so there's that some attitude among some people other people are at the opposite end of the spectrum and saying what about insects and you know should we be concerned about insect welfare and there's quite a lot of discussion ongoing at the moment about what insects might experience and very interestingly uh, and i guess a lot of people are concerned about animal welfare and they are um, maybe surprised about how animals are kept in some circumstances, not aware of that and what's, what goes on um, and therefore keen to see, to understand how one can assess the effects of those things on the animals and how one might improve um, welfare. I met an animal activist once who demanded to see how the animals were kept Years later, she ended up working in the area, mm -hmm. which was a very interesting transformation. Mm. She really wanted to understand it mm. and get first-hand knowledge and not just push a barrow, but be open to mm. what's really going on and what could be better. Mm. Yeah, I think there are quite a lot of people who are just interested generally in how the products that they use are, are raised, really, and, yes. and kept. And, and they, and, and they yeah, welcome an insight into that. What surprises have you encountered in your research field? Ah, that's a good question. Um, so a big area of our research has been trying to develop new ways of assessing animal welfare, as I've said. And one thing we've been interested in is um, the links between um, an animal's affective state or emotional state and the way it makes um, decisions and the cognitive, uh, its cognitive uh, and decision-making behaviour. So 
I guess our stance is that animal welfare is about what animals experience and feel. So it's about emotional states and affective states in, in animals. And of course, we can't directly access those um, because they're private. And of course, some people would argue that maybe these states don't exist in certain species. That's another philosophical argument. But we've been interested in seeing whether... Um, like humans, animals show links between how they're feeling and how they make decisions. So one of the areas we've worked in is the um, area to do with um, decision-making in ambiguous situations. And there's lots of um, data from human studies that people who are unhappy, depressed and so on tend to be much more pessimistic about the future and they make more careful, cautious decisions about ambiguity compared to people who are more uh, in a more positive, happier state. And we've been looking as to whether there are similar relationships between decision-making and uh, affective state and welfare in animals so that we can use measures of decision-making as a proxy measure of emotional state and, and hence welfare. I know when I'm feeling flat, I can't make decisions. Mm. Um, like, you know, there's a banana and an orange and I go, what do I need? What do I really need? What do I really feel like? I don't yeah. know. Oh, I should eat that. No, I, should, I haven't had enough of that. It's uh, It's quite a turbulent <laughs> Yes. for a simple decision yeah. when you're flat and tired. Yeah. So are these the are they food decisions or what do you um, put in front of the laboratory animals? Yeah, so the way we look at this question is we um, tr- train them on simple tasks, which is to discriminate um, a cue, for example, a sound, which predicts something nice like a food, a bit of food arriving, and another cue, a sound of a different frequency, which predicts something less nice like a nasty-tasting food arriving or no food arriving or a puff of air or something like that. And the animals learn to respond to these cues in appropriate ways. So, for example, they will approach the feeder to get the food when one cue, the positive cue, sounds. When the other cue sounds, they'll avoid the feeder and just keep away. So they learn this discrimination. And then we can just simply occasionally then ask them, how do you judge an ambiguous intermediate cue? So a cue of a different tone, which is different to the two training cues, is ambiguous to them. And we say, do you approach it? Are you, if you like, optimistic? Or do you stay back? Are you pessimistic? And then we try and see whether that relates to the animal's welfare state. So if animals who we think are in a more negative environment, for example, make more pessimistic decisions, that's the way we've looked at it. Do animals have cognitive biases? They obviously clearly have preferences Mm -hmm. and automatic responses. How do you make sense of that? Yeah, so the so the work we've been doing is on this decision making um, under ambiguity, which would be what we would call a cognitive bias in the sense that um, it's the animal is appearing to make a decision which is biased by um, something else. In this case, it's emotional or affective state, and that's a, a way a, a method we've been using to try and assess um, animal welfare. So basically. If the animal is showing a, a pessimistic quotation marks cognitive bias, then we could interpret this as being uh, the animal being in a more negative state. If it shows a more optimistic bias, we interpret it as being in a more positive state. And there's, we're doing a meta-analysis now on the the hundred studies which have been done using this approach now to see whether um, that's a robust finding. And it seems to be reasonably robust, but there are. Uh, exceptions as everyone would expect in science and we need to understand what those exceptions are about and what they mean. What inspired you to enter this field? Was there a particular case study that moved you? Did uh, Was it a book, a professor, a um, pet? <laughs> moving into animal welfare as a whole field, um, I think that came from doing animal behaviour as a PhD in animal behaviour studies and then thinking more about how do I apply this really and becoming aware of the growing field of animal welfare at that time 
um, and my professor, Professor Donald Broom in Cambridge, who um, ran a animal welfare group. I was doing a postdoc in Holland at the time, and I became more aware of animal welfare as an area where one could apply animal behaviour science. And I contacted Don and um, had an interview with him and luckily got a job. And that's that's when I moved into the more applied area of animal behaviour, which is looking at animal welfare. In terms of the work we've been doing on cognition and welfare decision-making and welfare, that's um, through particularly my partner, Dr. Liz Paul, who's a psychologist who was very aware of the human literature on the links between um, people's mental states and how they make decisions. So we together explored the possibility of developing this approach in animals. Oh, you made a psychologist and that's what... Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, in, t- in terms of those, that approach has come <laughs> through the understanding of human psychology. And in fact, one can argue that if one believes animal welfare is about feelings that animals have, then the best model of that is actually humans, because in humans we can talk to each other about our feelings. We have a, di- a, a, a more direct route to understanding if somebody's... Um, feelings and therefore we can look at the links between how they're feeling and their physiology for example or their behavior or their decision making and um, attempt to translate that to animals of course being careful um, not to do it in an uncritical way. I'm often amazed but not surprised that research is often driven by meeting someone in a allied field or Mm -hmm. interdisciplinary area uh, or a cross-disciplinary area, and uh, mm-hmm. that's what you've done. Yeah. I'd like to ask you, next time we see a mouse um, or we hear about laboratory animals, what would you like us to think? I think we'd like to, I'd like you to think about how complex that organism is. I mean, even if it's Drosophila, so a fruit fly, they can do very complicated things. I've been working with researchers who work with fruit flies, and they do very complex decision-making tasks, learn things. Likewise, the mouse has a... Has potentially very complex life, particularly its olfactory life, which we're very unaware of, the the smells that many mammals use in their day-to-day existence um, and the way in which they use that information is very complex. So it's a complicated organism in front of us doing something, uh, doing its living a, a complex life, and we have to think about then how we take that into a more confined laboratory environment, how that affects it, how that affects the findings we get from it. So there's obviously concerns that animal welfare improvements in laboratory animals also improves science because the animals are in a better state. Professor Mike Mendel, thank you on behalf of us and the animals. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to Mike Mendel, Professor of Animal Behaviour and Welfare at Bristol University in the UK. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on May 15, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.